0: Welcome to the second of our ESG series, why ESG is the future of finance. We launched our ESG initiative in early 2020 to help our financial services clients to increase their level of commitment to diversity, but also to decrease their carbon footprints. So we are committed as a business to encouraging a sustainable future within financial services, whilst attracting the top talent that will help to influence this. The person in our organisation who's very much spearheaded is one of our VPs, Georgina Sell. Thank you, Georgie, for your incredible commitment to this, as well as to the wider Bruin team who've helped to support this. I'll now hand over to Georgina, and I hope you all really enjoy today. Thank you.
1: Thanks very much, Emmeline. I'm sure, like a lot of you, ESG and sustainability is an area I've been particularly interested in for a long time. I was lucky enough to be partnered up with a lady at the Environment Agency through a mentorship programme organised by the 30% Club. She was instrumental in helping me to work out how I could make sustainability a bigger part of my role and a bigger focus for Bruin as a firm. As a result, I've rolled out an ESG workstream, which I'm very glad to say has been met with a lot of enthusiasm internally, and now externally as well, ever since we've started rolling out our ESG series. We are hoping to raise awareness across our financial services network and ultimately help towards bringing about a more sustainable financial services industry. Over the past 10 months, it has horrified me to learn that the world's leading scientists, politicians and economists are telling us that we have 12 years to reduce our current carbon emissions by at least 45% if we are to avoid what they call hothouse earth. This would lead to global migration problems, severely impact our food resources, our health and our economy. It has even been estimated that climate change could wipe out as much as 600 trillion from our global economy by the end of the century. The impact of climate change would be magnitudes worse than what we've experienced with the pandemic. However, the pandemic has helped to accelerate progress and more progress has been made in the last six months than we've made in the last 15 years. So with this in mind, I'm really looking forward to exploring the topic, why ESG is the future of finance with our speakers today. We're all on the same page that we want this to be a solutions oriented discussion and to get things moving in the right direction. We wanted to give you a well-rounded view of this topic and we have a diverse range of perspectives with individuals from asset management, wealth management, alternatives, a UK sustainability charity, and a professor and TED Talk speaker on our panel today. So I'm delighted to welcome our panel and introduce them to you. And to kick off, Tina De is Head of ESG and Macro Strategy at Cairn Capital. Tina is responsible for the development and implementation of Cairn Capital's ESG policy. She serves on the PRI Structured Products Advisory Committee and the European Leveraged Finance Association ESG Committee. She is also a member of various responsible investment industry working groups. We also have Patrick Thomas. Patrick created from scratch and now runs the ESG Portfolio Service at Canaccord. Their portfolio targets environmental and social investment themes linked to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. These include themes such as smart cities, clean energy, water and waste management and social housing. Patrick is a passionate advocate for global capital being able to solve sustainability challenges. And Alex Edmonds. Alex is a Professor of Finance at London Business School, a TED Talk speaker and author of Grow the Pie, which is a book around how great companies can deliver both profit and purpose. He also serves on Royal London Asset Management's Responsible Investment Advisory Committee. Martin Rich jointly founded and leads Future Fit Foundation, a UK-based non-profit with a vision of creating a society which is environmentally restorative, socially just and economically inclusive. Martin previously spent seven years as a Sales Director at Social Finance Limited where he focused on developing the investor base for social impact investments, including the first social impact bonds. Before that, he worked for 13 years in international investment banking for JP Morgan, HSBC, and UBS. And finally, Andrew Perry. Andrew is a 30 year plus veteran of the investment industry, holding over that time a number of senior positions, including being a CEO and CIO. He's been at Newton Investment Management for a year as head of sustainable investment and for the previous decade was at Hermes in a similar role where he developed a number of impact strategies. He's also a trustee director and member of the investment committee at the Trafalgar House Pension Trust and former co-chair of the UN Environmental Programme Positive Impact Initiative. And so to kick off, Tina, I've got a few questions for you. But would like to start by asking you about some of the key trends that you have seen in sustainable investing as a credit asset manager.
2: Sure. Thanks, Regina, And thanks for having me on this panel this afternoon. Um, so firstly, there's an increased investor focus on climate change risk. And secondly, we're seeing more financial innovation in this space. So on climate change risk, regulators are looking at this and the potential impact on financial stability. Climate risk disclosure from companies are being discussed, and the TCFD recommendation is the most important development in this space. The TCFD stands for the Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosures. And in 2017, this group released its recommendations on climate related reporting for corporates. And this has gained a lot of support from companies, regulators, and policymakers. So, what's becoming more widely understood in the industry? is the financial consequences of inadequate climate risk management. And at Cairn Capital, what we've noticed, for example, is that pension funds increasingly are looking at climate-focused investments, assessing the different temperature rise scenarios and alignment with the Paris Agreement objective. That is, keeping a global temperature rise below 2 degrees versus pre-industrial levels, whilst aiming to keep within a 1.5 degrees rise. And so financial innovations, we are seeing more green and social bonds. And these are bonds where bond proceeds are specifically used for either green or social projects. We've also started to see sustainability-linked bonds or loans, where the coupon or the loan margin is linked to a company's internal sustainability target or an external ESG score. And these are positive developments in my view to encourage companies to announce ESG targets publicly. And then finally, there's also a notable increase in the popularity of sustainable development goals. And these are goals providing guidance to the most pressing global environmental and social challenges, and which areas investors should focus on when integrating ESG considerations into their portfolios. Great, thank you very much,
1: Tina. And it seems we're entering an era where ESG products are moving into the mainstream. Do you think that there will be any investment in 10 years which isn't
2: ESG? Well, we've seen a remarkable growth in ESG investing already. And the key trend and the key driver in this trend is the shifting perceptions across the industry. Firstly, this is amongst consumers, but also asset owners and asset managers but it goes further with policymakers and regulators having changed their perceptions on this as well. So on one one hand, we have private investors who increasingly want to invest in line with their personal and moral values. And then on the other hand, we have institutional investors who are driven by firstly, the demand from their investors and other stakeholders to integrate sustainability considerations. And secondly, more and more regulations telling them to integrate ESG. And then finally, an increased realization in the industry that integrating ESG factors doesn't mean you need to sacrifice returns. So what we're seeing at Ken Capital um, that our own investors, the asset owners, increasingly expect us to integrate ESG factors. Only a few years ago, we would see zero or a very limited number of um, ESG questions in RFPs. But, but now we're seeing more significant pages dedicated to ESG. So this is clearly a topic that asset owners care about, and is not going to go away. The asset management industry as a whole um, can make a meaningful difference by allocating capital in ways that make a real positive impact. Um, So on a more practical level, this is achieved through ESG investing uh, by thoroughly integrating ESG factors into the investment process. And with this in mind, I do believe that ESG is the future of finance. So anticipate that at some point we will stop referring to ESG investing and simply say investing as integrating ESG considerations will have become the new normal.
1: Great, thanks, Tina. And what do you think the
2: new normal will
1: look like immediately after the pandemic?
2: Well, I believe the outcome of the current pandemic is that there's now a general recognition that companies should have a sustainable and resilient business model based on multi stakeholder considerations. And there are indeed emerging signs of an increase in interest in sustainable interest investing. For example, we've seen such strong inflows into ESG funds in Q1 and Q2 of this year, even during the pandemic. And with this comes new disclosure expectations. So I expect to see more ESG reporting and more standardization in reporting over time. For example, with establishment of standards. We'll continue to see new ESG products. And um, I think we'll also see more industry collaborations um, going forward to move us ahead. Um, here at Can Capital, we're involved in various initiatives, and we're working closely, for example, with the European Leverage Finance Association, trying to bring the leverage finance industry together um, to discuss and determine key ESG metrics. And ideally, information on these metrics will become part and parcel of deal documentation going forward. We're also working closely with the PRI, which is an organisation supporting investors um, with integrating ESG factors into their investment process, um, and we're looking at the structured finance sector currently trying to identify the challenges for investors and considering possible solutions and we're writing and in the process of publishing a report on this shortly
1: and it's obviously i mean it's exciting that a lot of perceptions are changing but how can we make the change happen fast enough to ensure that we do reach our net zero goals i mean it seems perhaps behaviors aren't quite haven't quite caught
2: up with ambitions yet Well, key challenges for investors currently are the lack of data availability and data quality in some asset classes more than others, but we really need improvements here. And then secondly, the lack of data standardization. Increased standardization would be beneficial for all stakeholders involved, including issuers themselves as they're receiving different ESG questionnaires from investors and is taking up a lot of resources on their side. And finally, being able to price ESG risk better, that is including ESG risk into asset valuations. Capital markets do not seem to be pricing in these risks yet. And that's also partly due to the lack of good quality data that I just mentioned. So one way of overcoming these challenges and so accelerating the ESG movement is through increased collaboration and the setting of clear standards, for example. It is important to have a direct dialogue with our peers, with issuers, but also policymakers and regulators. And we obviously need governments to intervene intervene here as well.
1: Great, thanks very much, Tina and Andrew. What role do you think that asset managers have to play in in creating a better future?
3: Well, in the asset management industry, we're we're privileged to touch effectively every sector and every country in the world through our investments you know with the enormous amount of money granted to us through pension funds saving accounts and other forms of financial investment comes enormous responsibility responsibility to deploy that capital well to make good financial returns that help our clients meet their saving objectives retire well but also increasingly importantly, to understand how we can help them retire well into a healthy and vibrant world and how a healthy and vibrant world in the future is linked to better economic and financial opportunities. Uh, it's not a nice to have. It is actually supportive of our primary job of actually making good, resilient, risk-adjusted returns that are benefit our clients over the long term. And and I think that's been the big evolution in thinking in this space, is that sustainable investment is about the future. It's about a a better future state. And I know that Alex uh, will talk about growing the pie. And, And it's a great concept because it is about understanding that if we actually move towards running our businesses, managing our investments in a way the balance is really well the need for good financial and economic returns but with care for the environment and for society that a healthy society a healthy planet actually ends up allowing more economic participation for a greater number of people that leads to more enduring and higher Profits that underpin our need for better financial returns. So, you know, that's such an important concept to get to get across that environmental, social and governance factors ultimately are about good business management. And that's something that we should always remember that ESG isn't a thing, isn't something an abstract concept. Uh, It's about the input into being uh, successful over the long term, to being a resilient, enduring business that then can provide the long term requirements to help us meet our financial objectives.
1: And what are some of the biggest challenges for an asset manager, do you think, in doing this?
3: Well, I think there are a lot of uh, competing challenges. And I think if you look at it over the short term, you have to recognize there is an inevitable dynamic tension between the ability to generate financial returns uh, and managing your social and environmental consequences. I think in many investment ways, for many investors, we have to remember not to mix up first order, either things that we do with the things that, uh, that the companies do. Yeah, at the end of the day, look, I'm an investor, so if I go out, say, in, in uh, shares, if I go out and buy shares in the company, I buy shares because I think they're going to reward my clients through a stream of future financial returns. But they're actually the people, the companies, out there hiring and firing, sadly having to let people go in this tough economic environment. They're using raw materials. They're producing waste and pollution. They're the people dealing with a complex series of regulations, legislation, changing social norms, uh, changing macroeconomic conditions. And I think that's sometimes the difficulty for investors is actually trying to frame that when you're trying to be a sustainable investor, you have to look at it through the lens of business models and economic models, and and not to try to claim uh, too much for yourself that we are actually relying on other people's endeavors. Now, where we do have a direct influence and is it's, it's our voice, a very important voice in helping shape the direction of travel for companies so that the way, if you like, we engage with management in helping encourage them to t- you know, manage well, not just shareholder returns, but the returns for other stakeholders. So for their, for their workers, for clients, uh, uh, for supply chains, so for the communities that they serve. Uh, and, and the recognition that actually by doing that and doing it well and having a long term perspective that is supportive of shareholder return. So engagement is a really important part. It provides this feedback loop between us and management, management back to us. And actually, one thing as well, I would say it is increasingly doing is there's a feedback loop from our clients. Remember, it's not our money something that I think is a fundamental mistake that many investors make. They always refer to my fund, you know, my account. Well, it's actually somebody else's money that we're investing. And they, uh, as Tina said, have values. They have uh, opinions. And increasingly, we're finding our clients are becoming activists. They want us to express on their behalf, their, val- their opinions, their values. So we're actually all becoming much more integrated in our thinking now and recognising, you know, to use a trite phrase, that we're actually we're all in this together, particularly when it comes to climate change.
1: And what do you think is the best way to achieve a more widely integrated approach to ESG and uh, essentially a more sustainable financial system?
3: Well, the key thing is to, f- is to focus on the purpose, not on the methodology. And that might sound um, a bit contrary to the way the the, the, the movement of ESG is going, but it comes back to you know, something I really passionately believe that ESG is, is a is a rich, complex series of inputs into the decision making uh, for an investor. It's a it's a complex series of inputs into how companies are managed. We shouldn't think of it as a label. And you know that's the thing that ESG is not is remember environmental social and governance issues that affect all companies uh, and their ability to remain relevant and resilient in in a changing world to actually help them navigate those changes and not to think of it as some shiny label that we we want to achieve in our portfolios because then you render it down to a set of scores and you play to methodology over purpose And I think that's a really important concept. We've just written ourselves our own corporate purpose statement to help us guide how we think we should run our business, how we should relate to our stakeholders. And I think that concept is is, is the way to make it real. Always think about what the companies are doing. How are they allocating all the different forms of capital, human, social, natural, relationship, intellectual, as well as financial. And think about how they're trying to achieve um, a sustainable model as a future state, not a current state. Because the danger is when we look at ESG scores, we think we've achieved it today. The reality is this is a journey uh, into a future state that we want to achieve.
1: Thanks, Andrew. And I mean, I've read a recent report by Investment Week that said uh, that only 28% of asset managers are, are currently reporting to the TCFD guidelines. Um, I think this number is actually due to jump up significantly this year, but should this not be obligatory? I mean, what, what do you think is the importance of ESG reporting for asset managers?
3: Well, I think what's this space? I think there's a, good, a strong possibility that TCFD reporting will become mandatory for investors and certainly pension funds by by the end of the year. I uh, get the feeling that that's the, the government's intention. Um, you know, I I think one of the challenges that we have with any reporting is quality of data. Um, I think uh, that's particularly true with climate um, and some of the the challenges there are that we're all aligned with wanting to achieve a zero carbon environment, that we want to keep temperature rises to one and a half degrees uh, because we all know the consequences. Unfortunately, some of the scenario planning and analysis, we're talking about a very complex topic. And so I think what we need to do is actually break it down into journey, into wayposts on a journey. Uh, and, and not just feel that if you've actually got a TCFD report that you've job done. You know, we've, we've done two. They're complex and the challenge that we have when we look to, you know, in preparation for next year is how we make the scenario analysis real and meaningful and just not a sort of box ticking exercise. And anybody knows anything about the the climate, it's a complex, interconnected system that's subject to all sorts of potential future outcomes, and it has to be an adaptive approach. So never think about it as you've done your job by having your TCFD report. The system is going to change, the rules are going to change, and that's a key key element of it. But it's a great initiative to get us thinking about the transition pathway. Uh, that we're on.
1: Thanks, Andrew and Martin. I'm interested to hear what your thoughts are on the measurement and reporting frameworks in existence now, and how do you think that we can close the gap between them?
4: Great. Thank thanks, Georgina. Um, it's a pleasure to be here with you all. Um, like I think uh, you know both Tina and Andrew have already touched on a number of of the issues with the the existing frameworks. I think the the biggest issue is the the, the lack of consistency and the lack of meaning in an awful lot of what we we call data that's available today and questionnaires that are built around um, well-meaning and well-intended understanding of businesses, but bring no consistency to that uh, information and have no necessarily strong linkage into what is the business doing? What is the transformational journey that the business is on? to be integrating these things into its core business. As Andrew already said, sustainability isn't a thing, sustainability is the outcome of the way you do the business. So for me, it's all about the current frameworks are doing a certain thing, but they're looking backwards. And again, Andrew was talking about a journey with Wayposts. And I think the backward looking piece is fine, it's part of the picture, right? You need to understand where a company has come from, but you don't just look at IFRS historical financial data when analysing a company. You also talk to the management and you look forward and you say, where are you going? How are you going to make hopefully a profit in the current year? How are you investing in the business? What are you doing? How are you growing? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And what we've created to to date with the ESG measurements and, and frameworks. Is, is a backward looking corollary of, of IFRS. So we say, where have you come from environmentally and socially? And that's fine. That's, there's nothing wrong with that It's part of the picture. But to us and Future Fit, one of the biggest gaps was, what's the equivalent of that looking forward? What are the wayposts? What is the journey that you need to go on? So the answer to your question is, we see a huge gap in the market, which is why we created the future business benchmark to be exactly that series of wayposts that use system science to show what businesses must do to be truly sustainable, to live within the planetary boundaries, to live above the societal foundations and to be able to show how they're changing their business to live within those restrictions, which they're not today. And then to communicate that forward looking message, to the investors, to stakeholders, policymakers, and everybody else to say, yeah, that's what we've done. Importantly, also, this is where we're going and this is what we're going to do.
1: And uh, I mean, many investors claim to already have ESG embedded um, into their investment process. So aren't we already at a point where ESG is the future?
4: I think you can probably preempt my answer to that question. Uh, no, definitely not. Um, Yes, absolutely, investors, many investors are embedding ESG to some extent uh, and some are doing it far more faithfully and meaningfully than than others. I think we probably all agree, there's a lot of greenwashing and a lot of talking about doing that going on in in the market. But I think it's about how are you actually able to do that when the underlying data suffers from all the problems that we've, we've already been discussing. I won't repeat those. So when you look at the disparity of the ratings that are available, you look at the the disparity within the data that's coming from the companies, it's actually incredibly hard for investors to do that well. Again, some are trying better than others, but we see time and time again, reports have come out over the summer, the disparity in the ratings, ESG ratings, versus the great consistency in credit ratings, financial credit ratings. Doesn't mean financial credit ratings are 100% right all the time, but at least they're broadly consistent. The gap in ESG ratings is huge. We also saw Boohoo over the the summer, double A rated by MSCI with a great supply chain apparently. And then obviously all the news broke about all the the stuff in Leicester. Now time time will tell the truth behind all of that hopefully, but the damage was done to the brand and the damage was done to, to the rating all of which is pointing at this this information is not correct. We're not getting the picture we really want to see. So it's about having that right information. And I totally agree with Tina. Hopefully in 10 years time, ESG investing no longer exists. I totally wanna see no ESG investing, sustainable investing. I just want to see investing and this becomes a core part of it.
1: And what role do you think business leaders have in that in creating a better future
4: critical utterly critical um i'll put it more bluntly than than andrew did investors don't do anything um there's 100 people on this call now who don't like me i don't mean that in a, a a terrible way what i'm i'm meaning of course is that at the end of the day this is about capital allocation into the businesses Those are the businesses that are actually producing the stuff, digging things out of the ground, making products, whatever it might be, and all of those things that are leading to many of the issues. Now, of course, investors themselves are often businesses, and they suffer from many of those same issues. But the reality is the biggest impact of any investor by far, it's not their own carbon footprint, it's not their waste bins or using recycled paper, good as those things are, it's about where are you putting the money? irrespective of whether you're a credit and equity or somewhere in between investor. So what you need to be doing as investors is understanding this transformation that a business is or is not undertaking because that is the critical thing, the only thing, not the only thing, the key thing that will drive change towards the SDGs to getting us to a truly sustainable future. So encouraging and supporting the businesses who will and want to transform and actually beginning to look at taking the capital away, ultimately, from those who won't, A, because it doesn't give us the future we need, and B, because they'll just be a terribly bad investment, See coal, over the last few years. So it's important that the investors are allocating the capital accordingly, but ultimately, it's the businesses who must be encouraged, persuaded, or ultimately, if it comes to it, forced by regulation to change the way they're behaving.
1: Great, thanks Martin. And Alex, I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on a slightly more controversial topic. Um, We've sort of alluded to it a little bit, but there has been a lot in the press about the fact that the explosion of ESG funds um, is leading to box ticking um, and ESG funds aren't always proven to outperform. What are the main mistakes that investors can make when trying to invest responsibly and, and how can they perhaps take a more discerning approach?
5: Well, first, thanks very much, Georgina, for having me on. It's, it's great to be here. So I think one of the main mistakes is to present the evidence in a rather blunt way. So there's a lot of claims that ESG investing always outperforms. Hargreaves Lansdowne, which I'm a big fan of, I've been their client for 20 years, recently announced to investors, study after study shows that ESG outperforms. But actually, the evidence is much more nuanced than that. There are certain ESG dimensions that matter, and certain that might actually not be financially material. And in fact, the materiality of different stakeholders will vary industry by industry so this is why the box ticking approach that some investors will make might not actually deliver long-term returns and similarly there are certain dimensions of ESG which might actually act in the opposite direction to what we might think so when we look at executive pay often investors will look at the quantum of the pay or the pay ratio thinking that higher ratios that means there's a bad culture that's negatively linked to performance actually the evidence doesn't show that it's other dimensions of pay in particular the long term versus short-term nature that matters so then to your question sort of how do investors then try to, to make a more discerning approach i'm going to be biased given i'm academic here but there's a lot of rigorous academic research on these topics but but often that research gets buried why because it's nice to have a soundbite that esg always outperforms and and that you don't need to take material out into account we have this confirmation Bias where any story which claims something which is unambiguous is going to be likely shared, widely shared. Instead, the message that, well, it depends on the situation and you can't just rely on ratings, you need to take into account strategic context, that's less appealing a message. But actually, that's the message which is borne out by the data. And actually, just to, to, to flip that around, it's actually more appealing. Why? Because if there was a perfect ESG score, if ratings were perfect, everybody here would be out of a job, right? There would be no need for human investors because you can have a smart beta fund which just invests on the basis of ESG ratings, just like there are now smart beta funds looking at momentum and value and so forth. So all the points that Andrew and Martin and Tina made, which I fully agree with, actually that ambiguity is great news for for active investors. So I would say ESG is the future of finance, not just the finance industry, but sort of finance jobs. Right. Because this is where human investors have a real advantage, because they take into account a lot of the nuances that computers would not be able to do.
1: And how do you think that investors can get around the problem that it is hard to measure ESG and, you know, different ESG rating providers disagree with each other? And how, how would you sort of advise that they get around that
5: I think it's to understand well what is the ESG rating trying to do. So, so any ESG rating needs to come up with some um, idea as to what they think is, is going to be ethical and responsible, and there'll be naturally differences of opinion on on that. And and so, you can't just take an ESG rating off the shelf, but instead to look at the disaggregated components. Right? How are they measuring each of the different areas? For example, you could measure female friendliness by the gender pay gap or by the percentage of women in the workforce or the percentage of women on the board. And it might be for you as an investor, you have a different way for measuring this than the rating agency. So rather than just saying, oh, we're going to avoid this company because it has a low rating, try to look at the underlying methodology. So I would say the ESG ratings are still not useless, but they should build the case for investing rather than be the case for investing so in the same way that you wouldn't look at an equity research report and because it says buy you're going to automatically buy you're going to look at the actually underlying reasons for that i think that should be the same um, approach that you should take to an esg rating and then simply supplement this with with the boots on the ground approach of of talking to management right because the numbers which are often what ratings are based around exactly as martin says that looks at historically what they've achieved not so much what they're going to do going forward so there's particular discerning issues that you could talk to management about their purpose so what is your purpose why have you chosen that to be your purpose what have you deliberately um ignored omitted from your purpose can you give examples where you took a decision which was based on your purpose that you wouldn't have taken if your goal was just long-term shelter value that boots on the ground approach is something that is an investor's unique comparative advantage
1: Great. Thanks, Alex. And you've written a lot on executive pay. How should responsible investors think about reforming pay at the companies that they invest in?
5: So often um, uh, people approach responsibility as a, a fixed pie idea. The idea is that the value that a company creates is a fixed pie. So anything that goes to executives is at the expense of everybody else. So that's why there's a lot of focus on the pay ratio. The idea is if the CEO is overpaid, she's taking pay from her workers. But in fact, there's a lot of evidence suggesting that the pie can be grown as Andrew was saying earlier, right? So what matters isn't so much how much the CEO has paid in terms of quantum, but has she created long-term sustainable value for both investors and wider society. So we cannot divorce the level of pay from the actual value being created. So in fact, what I think is more important is not the quantum, but the horizon of pay. So if CEOs are being paid according to a five or seven year stock price, that gives them incentives to not only care about long-term investments, but care about their stakeholders. Because as was mentioned by my fellow panelists, caring about your stakeholders is not just fluffy, it's not just worthy. It's good business Why right? any CEO who wants to make sure that her company is future proof will want to make those investments. And I think the long term dimension of executive pay is going to be really critical for that.
1: Thank you, Alex. And um, Patrick, I guess coming from a wealth management perspective, you've been very vocal about investing in sustainable themes being the only way to avoid greenwashing. What would you, um, or how would you explain what sustainable themes mean in in simple terms and how easy are they to implement?
6: Sure, so thanks a lot for having me. I I think two things are happening at the same time, which makes it a really interesting environment for investors. The first thing is that you have ultimately the climate transition and economic growth working for a greater number of people being mission-critical risks that are going to affect economies and markets over the next decade. That's the top down. And then at the same time, you have five or six really interesting innovation platforms that are disrupting everything that actually um, are going to be really, really important for investors to be on the right side of. I'm thinking about areas like energy storage. I'm thinking about areas like artificial intelligence, deep learning, um, possibly blockchain. All of these technologies, and again, I don't want to get too technical about it, through rights law, are essentially becoming cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So you have, on the one hand, risks affecting markets, and you have innovation platforms that are making essentially some of these massive sustainability challenges that we have um, as a society soluble. So, and actually that's creating quite a nice environment for investors, particularly investors who are looking for the kind of holy grail, can I have my investments performing well? And can I make sure that they do good at the same time? And as we've kind of alluded to on this panel, the doing good point is certainly debatable um, we're going to be waiting a long time for people to agree on the data quality and the standardization of that data. Um, but we can probably, as investors everywhere, think much more in terms of what does a company do? What kind of product or service does it provide? And does it help some of those sustainability challenges? And helpfully, we have a framework provided by people like the UN through the Sustainability Goals, to start being a bit more empirical about this. And actually the interesting thing for investors, just to finish the point, would be that all of these ideas at the beginning seem a bit silly and far-fetched. So if you went back to 2009, 2010, the idea that I could rent out my room and that would be a movement and it would disrupt the hotel industry was kind of crazy. Um, Seven years ago, it was probably a bit mad to think that I could get my phone out and order a taxi and be less stressed about it because I'm fully aware of where that taxi is in relation to me. I kind of, I think that actually, and the investors that have done well over the past 20 years are the ones who have been a little bit more comfortable with uncertainty and prepared to look at things that might well well be where the economy is going and the company's taking advantage. So we think that thematic framework is a really nice way for investors to kind of reassure themselves that they are solving problems, but also really importantly, making sure that it's performing well.
1: Great, thank you, Patrick. And I mean, we did allude to this a little bit earlier, but Canaccord are obviously involved in a range of themes such as smart cities, clean energy, water, waste, all the way through to social housing. What would you say are the key and, and sort of most important socially, environmentally focused themes?
6: Yeah, so we, we think they're all kind of, it's, it's pretty difficult for us to say that one challenge is bigger than the other. Um, I think the framework of thinking about the climate transition and the areas around that that you might expect, like clean energy, um, uh, water and waste, uh, circular economy, people are pretty familiar with those kind of spaces. Um, and are probably expected, but I think the social dimension is probably a little bit less familiar to investors, but equally um, accessible to investors in terms of accessing it. Um, There are plenty of opportunities for looking at impactful healthcare in areas like oncology, for example, and again, hinging off demographics, simply, is this a good investment and is it doing good for the world? We have a kind of healthcare problem that we need to solve. And then even on something like a little bit more close to home, stuff like data privacy and cybersecurity, mission critical for companies, individuals, and governments. And again, really, really attractive places to invest. But it does require investors to think a bit differently to the way that they have thought over the past 10 years. So if you, are, if you do care about these issues and you do think from a, performance perspective, they're going to be interesting places to be. You kind of do need to go all in. So the, the idea that we're going to solve any of these problems by investors deciding to sell their mining company and buying a telecom is just, it's just not going to happen. And unfortunately, you're going to need a bigger leap from investors.
1: And Do you see socially focused investment being more attractive to investors than environmental ones post Corona?
6: I don't see it. I I think they're they're going to be linked because I think the the green recovery is going to be pretty critical in terms of getting the world economy back to work. So I think that they're very linked. Um, I I also think on balance, I think if we've learned a lesson from the coronavirus, it's the idea that we should be preparing for events like this um, and spending money on it. And I think that lesson is going, I I hope that that lesson is going to be learned by kind of governments and policymakers in terms of kind of priorities. And I think generally, you've already seen it within companies. And generally speaking, Larry Fink at BlackRock and the investors that really matter, I don't matter. I'm just a bearded lunatic in my kind of um, kitchen table preaching. But what Larry Fink says does matter. And he kind of has made it very, very clear to his investee companies, that he expects them to, do you know what, don't focus on shareholder returns and profits for a couple of years, keep your workforce employed. And, and I think increasingly it's that kind of argument that is gonna become, again, um, a, a lot more standardized than it has been before. Um, so yeah, quite a profound shift.
1: Thanks, Patrick, and um, I think we're going to move over to some Q and A now. Um, so, Emily, if you don't mind, um, sort of opening up some questions to the audience, that would be uh, that'd be great. No
0: problem. I will just feed some through. Um, firstly, one um, probably relevant to you, Tina. Um, how do you think we can increase industry collaboration?
2: Um, I'd recommend people to get involved. Um, Firstly, the um, responsible investment space is a very collaborative part of our industry. And secondly, we're all facing very similar changes um, in our roles. And so it's it's really great to be able to discuss this with peers. Um, In the end, I think it's been mentioned before, we want to raise awareness and see solutions for the environmental and social challenges that we're currently facing. And there are a couple of notable industry initiatives out there for investors to get involved with. One example is Climate Action 100 and plus, and this is an investor-led engagement initiative. Um, They're targeting around 160 companies, companies who are the largest corporate greenhouse gas emitters. Investors are engaging with these companies to improve their climate performance and to ensure a transparent disclosure of emissions. Thank
0: you. And slightly, I suppose, related to what you were finishing on, Patrick, um, with HSBC's announcement on Friday that their net zero ambitions over the next 10 years, uh, is there a risk that carbon is seen as the only game in town and other ESG topics get missed or get less focus?
6: Um, Yeah, I think that that is a risk. Um, I think but carbon is more measurable. Uh, and there's more of a framework around carbon um than there is probably around some of the um the social metrics that you look at so i i think it's a, it's a risk but it's a kind of natural one um i i think my my kind of fear on the kind of greenwashing side which i've have probably preached a little bit about this before um ultimately this is a this the this sort of data um space here is still very gameable by um, companies, particularly bigger companies. Um, And there is still a kind of avaricious um, fund management industry out there that are going to create products around that, which they think are more marketable. And ultimately, if you're a group and you can create a fund that looks a bit like the S&P 500 with the companies in a slightly different order and a couple of exclusions, Um, there will be a big temptation for funds out there to do that. And unfortunately, um, you will have uh, a degree of um, take-up from an industry that doesn't necessarily want to change its its ways too much um, quickly. But but yeah, no, I I think it is a risk. Thank you.
0: Um, And one for Alex. Um, Alex, how would you best advise business leaders um, who are looking to do the right thing to deliver both profit and purpose at the same time.
5: Thanks, Emily. That's a fundamental question. So I think number one would be just to see a purpose as being fundamental to business. So it's not CSR, something that you can delegate to a CSR department. It's how a business is run. So some of you might be familiar with this European Commission study into sustainability. One of their ideas is that there should be one person on the board, like a chief purpose officer. I think that's crazy, right? It should be the responsibility of the full board. You can't just say, well, this is something that we can silo within one person. So it's the court, it's about the port core business rather than some ancillary activity. I'd also say to business leaders just to highlight that purpose is not just about doing no harm, reducing our carbon footprint, even though that's really important, but about actively doing good. So I think this might be a little bit implicit in Ian's question is that, well, if we focus too much on one thing, that might uh, forget some other ESG factors. So let's take Mercedes, which is now pivoting and using their precision engineering to make CPAP breathing machines, that has a huge effect on society, but that's something which might not be captured in, say, a carbon metric, which is, which is a do-no-harm issue. And even if we were to focus on carbon alone, right, we need to think about the broader impact that we're having. So I serve on the Responsible Investment Advisory Committee of Royal London, and this morning we looked at the warming analysis tool from um, MSCI, and actually some of our worst investments in terms of warming were semiconductors, Right, but on the other hand, semiconductors have a huge benefit because without this technology, then other companies might not be able to participate in the transition. So again, we want to look at the positive good that we create and not just the harm. And I think the final thing is for any business leader to think about what, what purpose actually means. We think purposeful means serving everybody, but actually a purposeful meeting is one which is focused and targeted. And if I do something on purpose, I do it deliberately. So a purposeful company needs to be defining what are the two or three social issues that they're going to really move the needle on. It's not their responsibility to solve all of the world's problems, to focus on that. And that might avoid the greenwashing issue that other people have asked about, where greenwashing happens when you just respond to whatever social issue happens to be the order of the day, even if it's not linked to your unique comparative advantage. Mm
0: -hmm. Thank you. And actually, we've had another question specifically, actually, um, on greenwashing and it's based um, to the panel, but um, perhaps uh, maybe Martin, you'd like to take this one. Um, does the panel agree that greenwashing is still a big problem for the industry and what can be done to resolve this?
4: Um, Yeah, absolutely. Um, Just to touch on the previous question, if I can be cheeky and any business leaders out there, go to futurefitbusiness.org, download the benchmark guidance and follow it. That's how you can become uh, a sustainable business. The greenwashing, absolutely. I mean, again, Alex touched on this, right? I mean, it's just really easy for for the big organizations and small ones just to be sort of sticking up an SDG logo on the website or be just hiding behind things rather than actually digging in and saying, what does this really mean? I mean, interestingly, again, linking to a previous question, I was pleased, the devil will be in the detail, but I was pleased to see in the HSBC announcement, they're actually talking about, I think it was net zero, but still net zero from their clients, those who they're actually lending to. That's a huge step forward. Now, you know we have to again, you have to read the details, you have to read behind the language and make sure you see what these organizations are really doing. But to answer this question, I think the that really is the key. It's about digging behind those headlines that come out and the SDGs that get stuck on the website. We're going to do this. What do you really mean by that? and importantly, how are you going to show? that you're taking that journey? How are you going to show us what you're going to do on the way? Are you going to be completely transparent with the good and the bad? Be open and honest about it and say, here's the problem. Here's what we're trying to solve. And here's how we're going to show you how we do on that journey. Because otherwise, it just becomes a whole series of, we're going to become carbon neutral. We're not going to have any discrimination. We're going to have fully circular, you know, non-harming products by 2050. Um, which when the average CEO tenure is now under three years, Alex, I'll look to you, you'll know this better than me. But right, you know, incredibly short timeframes of people being within organisations, massively long horizon goals just means we won't be here when that comes to land. So look behind the headline, ask for the detail, understand what they're going to show on the journey. That's how we beat greenwashing.
0: Thanks, Martin. There's actually another one here for you, um, uh, related again. Um, what are your views on corporate accreditation organisations, for example, B Corp? Um, is standardisation a good thing or too backward-looking?
4: Several questions in one. There is that standardisation okay. is a good thing. Accreditations can be a good thing. Again, slightly depends what are you accrediting, what's behind it, how real is it, and how how Um, scientifically or otherwise have the goals been set. B Corp specifically, um, love B Corp, love what they've done, created an amazing global movement. Um, The the challenge within what they've done is we, we kind of see it as being an MOT for businesses to show that you've got all of the right things in place to be taking your business to a truly sustainable future. So if every business in the world became a B Corp, the world would be a better place, but it wouldn't be truly sustainable because that wasn't the destination that was set out within what B Corp have done. I think we've also seen there are some challenges, particularly for listed and bigger companies because of the change of mem and arts that are required to become a B Corp. I know that's been quite a a stumbling block. One or two big companies have gone through that, but a lot are finding that difficult. So I think things like B Corp are absolutely fantastic, but understand what it is that they're actually telling you about that organization or what that organization is doing. And don't just take it as carte blanche that that means they're an amazing organization with no problems whatsoever. I mean, even B Corp would not claim for a second that that was what the label was was about. So standardization, good. Backward looking is fine, but you need to look forward as well. B Corp, fantastic but again just understand what that logo is if you're buying stuff for example as just as a consumer then you know b corps fantastic knock yourself out
0: great thank you um uh andrew um how do you see um esg affecting pensions in the future
3: well ESG and pension funds has probably led to one of the biggest increases in my workload in my my career this year. Uh, Some people might uh, know that the Department of Work and Pensions, there's a phrase from the almost 1950s, uh, have actually now, through the Statement of Investment Principles, enshrined ESG into pension funds. In, in, so they have to state their approach to ESG in, the, in their SIP. Uh, they have to then publish an implementation statement of how they're going to do that. Now this in, involves how do they sort of integrate it into the divestment decisions, but also about voting and engagement. Um, so really now ESG is formally enshrined in uh, pension funds in the UK. It's been reinforced by the UK stewardship code under the Financial Reporting Council, uh, their guidance. And and I think the one thing that I have seen this year is, well, not even an exponential, but a super exponential interest in in voting, engagement, and ESG policies from our pension fund clients. So they are incredibly active about it, they want really detailed information, and they're on an incredible journey themselves on reporting. Um, in defined contribution schemes, uh, which are the growth of the future, you uh, people that run those and sponsor them will have to ask their members about ESG preferences. So somebody asked a question about uh, um, on, on the chat line about how do you actually get, uh, how do individuals' preferences get in, uh, taken into account? Well, increasingly through the defined contribution pension scheme, there will be an opportunity for individual members to express their preference. Uh, and also if the, the DC plans are set up and big enough, there'll be a range of options so they can then put their money were you know, aligned with their values and their, and their interest. So that you know, the defined contribution and the defined pension fund market are now actively integrating ESG. Um, many of them are struggling a bit, to be honest, because we, not all pension funds are tens of billions of pounds. Some of them just are a hundred million. So it is quite, a, quite an onerous expectation, but it's now firmly in that, on their radar and firmly integrated in not just how they manage risk, but actually, as Patrick's talked about, how you, they use some of the themes of, uh, uh, around sustainability as a lens for finding exciting investment opportunities for the future.
0: Great, thank you. Is there anything else that needs to happen? Well, I'm sure there's lots, but um, what else needs to happen to ensure or enable the voice um, of households to have an impact? So the ultimate investors, what else needs to happen to enable their voice to be heard?
3: Well, here we've got the power of social media. I think social media has already played an enormous role in influencing companies, investment management firms. There are lots of um, organizations like sh- uh, Share Action who are trying to uh, give the individual and uh, end investor a voice. Um, I think uh, increasingly, if you're in a position that you can use a platform or a wealth manager, then make sure that they have voting and engagement themselves. Um, So, you know, that's a really important mechanism, you know, making sure that your manager, actually, if you are using an investment manager or an investment product, actually vote and engage because then they can, you know, they can actually take action. So, And it's not always the case that some of the very biggest firms that claim a lot of virtue in this area actually vote in line with their stated public policies. So always make sure that what they say on the tin is actually what they're doing. And that's not just companies, but that's also investment management firms.
0: Perfect, thank you. Um, Alex, sorry, um, you submitted a message during one of the questions that I didn't see. Was there anything else you wanted to add before we close?
5: No, it was just on the earlier thing about um, uh, Ian's question about carbon, but given that you asked me a different question, I was able to chime in about that. So the the danger is that you're focusing too much on one issue rather than other issues. And even if it's carbon, you need to think about the second order impacts. Yes, producing semiconductors might lead to emissions, but on the other hand, it might help lots of other companies in terms of the transition. So we need to have this holistic idea of not just the harm that you do, but the act of good that you also produce.
0: Thank you. Georgie,
1: I think that's probably our time. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, we think we've sort of a minute or so to go. But thank you very much for all of that and, and for your um, participation from the audience. I mean, it's quite clear that climate change and social awareness is now greater than it has ever been. So it does seem to be quite a fitting time to consider how this should play into an investor's portfolio. And it's clear that financial services firms have a responsibility to help lead the way. The investment industry can't save the world on its own, clearly, but it is a significant part of the big picture. They can make a meaningful difference in terms of allocating capital, thoroughly integrating ESG into their investment process, whilst disengaging companies that aren't aligned with future goals. It's really about how quickly they can drive change in their portfolios. However, the investment industry does need to be supported by governments, policymakers, regulators, and business leaders. It is clear that that governments and policymakers are changing their perspectives on this topic. We're finding that more and more ESG regulations are coming into place, but business leaders also need to respond to these new regulations. And they are at risk of exacerbating social and environmental issues if they don't do better with the massive stimulus of government funding that has been pumped into our economies because of the pandemic. Just going to finish on a, a quote which Jeremy Darrock, CEO of Sky, said, which is business leaders shouldn't only look to government to solve the problem. Business survives and thrives because we are all part of a connected ecosystem. And that means it's not just the responsibility of other institutions to tackle climate change. It is our responsibility too. Indeed, the future of our businesses, and more importantly, our planet depend on it. Thank you all very much for uh, participating today. And special thanks to our, our panel speakers and the CFA for supporting our ESG series.